Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Todd Bellamere from our Definitive Healthcare team and our special guest, Dan Trencher. Dan is Senior Vice President for Corporate Strategy at Teladoc and a member of the Teladoc Executive Leadership Team. Teladoc is the global leader in whole-person virtual care, offering services that include primary care, mental health, chronic condition management, and more. Before this role, Dan led product management for Teladoc and previously worked at WellPoint and WellChoice. Let's dive right into the conversation. Dan, welcome. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me here. We are thrilled to have you here. It should be a really interesting conversation. So let's get going. I want to start with an easy one. I just described Teladoc as the global leader in whole person virtual care, which frankly I pulled directly from the About Us section of your website. I always thought of Teladoc though as a leader in telemedicine. So tell me, what's the difference between telemedicine and virtual care? And why does Teladoc choose to position itself as the leader in virtual care? It's a great question to start with because uh, telemedicine or virtual care is an industry that hasn't had a lot of clear terms uh, over the course of time. So, um, you know, where I'd start is that the key difference is that virtual care is much broader than telemedicine, which in telemedicine is where uh, Teladoc uh, got its start. Um, I think of telemedicine as a live clinical interaction between a consumer and a patient and a provider, or sometimes a provider and a provider, but it's very much a, a, a live um, sort of discrete um, visit or interaction. R virtual care is a whole lot broader than that, right? It includes ongoing chronic condition management, um, digital tools and digital self-management, um, you know, AI-driven reminders and nudges, uh, remote monitoring, ambient sensors, and I could sort of go on and on. That's all part of what uh, certainly today is virtual care. Um, so uh, it, it's funny, I often say, you know, people know Teladoc or, or the industry best for live visits. Um, and that's what a lot of people interacted with over the past the last couple of years. So that's actually a very small part of what we do today. It's, it's important for many of our services, but it, it is a pretty small part of it. So, you know, I bet a lot of our listeners have probably used Teladoc, but may not even know that they're using Teladoc. So who do you sell to? Like, I can't go off and buy you as a consumer. Well, actually, you could. Okay, good. That isn't the the sort of the center of our go-to-market strategy. Um, so um, it, it's probably helpful to think in terms of the trajectory of, of the company. Certainly, when we started, uh, and I started with the company over ten, just about ten years ago, um, we started by selling uh, virtual care telemedicine, uh, you know, as a service to large employers, uh, and then health plans uh, picked up on it as more of their uh, clients bought into uh, trying uh, telemedicine. We sort of expanded from there to serving hospitals and health systems. Uh, they're often with a more of a technology platform, software, hardware, uh, and services on top of that. So go to market that way uh, as well. Um, we do actually do a fair amount of direct to consumer, mostly through um, a part of our company called BetterHelp, uh, which is the leading uh, online digital therapy 
platform. Um, so it is definitely a mix. And we've actually gone um, international as well. Um, so clearly, um, the US is still the biggest part of our business, but we have real sort of business and operations in country in Europe and South America, uh, in Asia, Australia, and, and sort of many areas around that. And it, it's interesting as a healthcare executive, you don't often get to do that broad a, a, a palette, right? And sort of have a international and sort of multi-stakeholder uh, uh, sort of go to market, which uh, makes it pretty interesting why, uh, you know, 10 years later, it's still pretty interesting. Yeah, that, that sounds interesting. Uh, you know, telemedicine experienced just crazy growth at the start of the pandemic. We talk a lot about using data in this podcast. So I got some really cool data. Probably not going to surprise you. Surprise me when Todd and his team pulled these numbers. And, you know, I'd love to get a reaction. But 2019, roughly 1.2 million patients had a telemedicine claim. That jumped to a whopping 68.7 million in 2020. Uh, and as of November of 2021, which is the latest data that I have today, you know, it's about 64, almost 65 million visits. You assume a steady run rate, that's probably another 5.4 million visits in December for close to 70 million visits in 2021. So you're looking, just to kind of recap there, 1.2 million in 2019 to 70 million in 2021. That's crazy. How did that feel for you being in this business? Well, it certainly was a pretty interesting time last March and April, because as you know, uh, you know, things happen pretty quickly um, and we're used to seasonality uh, in our business and always see it, you know, grow with cold and flu season in the fall and kind of you know, come down a little in the summer. Uh, and this was a step change in a matter of a couple of weeks. Um, so uh, definitely took a little adjustment, you know, sort of hour to hour uh, at that moment. Um, but what's really interesting is, you know, once uh, things settled in a little bit, um, what we really saw was a massive change in, as you said, consumers uh, and providers, honestly, getting their first exposure for many of them. Obviously, we've been operating for a while and, and many of our clients had had success with uh, with our programs. But at, at an aggregate level, right, you started at an industry level, a societal level, most people got their first experience, right? And what was great was that, you know, all of the feedback was that, um, People's first experience was good. They really enjoyed it. Uh, I think it was 80% plus of people said their virtual uh, care experience was at least as good, if not better, than what they're used to getting uh, through the traditional sort of community uh, delivery uh, environment. Uh, and uh, what we saw is that as consumers had these experiences, their expectations started to change about what their virtual care experience should be, right? Um, and started people started comparing it more to you know you know I my shopping experience right you know through an Amazon or something or when I book travel or when I bank and these other sorts of deeply digital experiences and the seamlessness and the personalization of how those companies have created those uh, those experiences that's what they started to bring to healthcare which is super healthy right because I I think I firmly believe that you know consumers expectations about their healthcare experience have been way too low for way too long. Um, and this was it, was, it was super healthy to sort of start comparing healthcare to other industries. Uh, and, you know, what we saw from that was then was, was the buyers in our industry, which are predominantly still employers and health plans and, and, you know, hospitals and health systems, you know, their expectations started to change because they saw the consumers were, you know, really starting to adopt. And they saw that virtual care could be really strategic to their businesses. 
right? Particularly on the health plan side and, and the hospital and health system side. So it wasn't just a sidelight. It wasn't just kind of an additional benefit to offer. It, could, it became central in many cases to, you know, the strategy uh, of, of a plan or, or of a hospital and health system and how they stayed open, how they, how they deliver care. And so those expectations started to change from a buyer perspective as well around, you know, broader, more integrated solutions, consumer experience, provider experience. And, and, and we see that's all good, right? We see that that's really the future. Yeah, no, I was just thinking that, you know, when you talk about that holistic view of, you know, what, what telemedicine is versus what uh, virtual care is, as we see people try to or start to change their opinion about, oh, hey, I can do this too, and it works, you know, which is probably a far cry from where it was maybe six or seven years ago, as you know, internet speeds have gotten better and it gets easier to to start to uh, get into that sort of thing and feel like you're you're getting the full bandwidth, so to speak, of the of the of your health visit. Do you do you see sort of that trickle down effect of like everyone's got their Apple Watch or their Fitbit or whatever, saying, oh, hey. You know, I now have this portal online that I can interact with my healthcare providers. How do I get this stuff in there? Like all that other stuff that could be encapsulated by uh, virtual care. It's now not just the visit with the doctor. It's, oh, hey, my heart rate is on this thing. My steps are on this thing. So that sort of thing. Have you seen that sort of pick up after April of last year? Yeah, I would say more broadly that, you know, going, as you said, beyond the sort of the clinical visit. Um, has been uh, critical, and it is a bigger part of our company too, right? You know, as you know, we merged with uh, Livongo during the course of the the pandemic, uh, and uh, you know, a key element of those offerings is around the you know gathering data, right, through devices. Those are you know generally sort of special purpose devices, you know, that gather uh, blood sugar readings and uh, and uh, blood pressure. Uh, but similarly, you know, heart rate and other sorts of uh, data that can come from wearables or your watch are going to become, I think, increasingly part of the the picture on how uh, you know virtual care in a longitudinal way is is uh, is delivered. Um, I, I'd say that's one of the big transitions um, in uh, the environment. It, it, it's less sort of just that these devices are out there, though there are more devices out there than ever. Um, but as virtual care is transitioning from being uh, so very supportive, very episodic and transactional to being longitudinal and really often central to how consumers are uh, experiencing and accessing care. There's a lot of talk about virtual primary care, you know, as a as a broad term, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about more. Um, and within that is the underlying principle of a longitudinal relationship, right? Uh, between a patient and the technology, a patient and a provider, and all those different types of additional data. Um, can be super powerful, right? Because uh, as you know, you know, a lot of in the community, all the care is squeezed into in a year, squeezed into maybe an hour when you're, you know, with a physician. But care is 365, you know, 24 by seven, right? And that's the promise of how, you know, these devices and technology can really enable consumers to access care, and manage their health throughout the year. You can almost think of something like the Framingham Heart Study, right? Like the longest running, you know, uh, a trial pretty much of uh, or longitudinal study of health uh, and how it connects to other people uh, in their lives and and how maybe behavior spread. And now taking this amount of data now that we are are really intertwining it with our our visits and then saying, oh, okay, let me get the rest of my data in there. It almost explodes that Framingham Heart Study into like now almost anyone can do it. And when you think about uh, anyone being any company that can consume this data and then look at it and start using 
you know, ML or AI strategies to say, what does the outcome look like for a patient profile with these uh, indicators? And so that, that to me is what blows my mind and what I'm super excited for. Uh, you know, I, I have a very optimistic view of what this data can do for us and where we'll be in five, 10, 15 years or so. So, you know, to hear that, like, these are all the things that, that everyone is thinking about when they're looking at this data, that uh, it warms my heart. So, <laughs> and I think you hit the nail on the head, you know, as more devices of various sorts come online, there, there's more and more data, right? And so it's not the gathering of the data, or even the aggregation of the data is where value is created. It's about the analysis of the data, you know, using AI, as you said, and ML to generate insights to help, you know, clinicians do their jobs, you know, better, um, and to help drive behavior change at the consumer level, right? So that they can manage their own health better in terms of their you know, eating decisions and, and reminders on, you know, in, in, in order to improve, you know, adherence to, you know, medical directions or or to medication adherence itself. Um, that can be really powerful, and that's obviously an area that we're really focused on is that use of the technology applied to the data to um, uh, to change that consumer and uh, and provider behavior. So, so it's an interesting topic that you get hit on there, Dan. I want to, you know, we recently had Michael Greeley from Flare Capital here. We talked a lot about the retailization of healthcare, CVS, Walgreens, Walmart offering primary care, right? And Michael and I debated whether it's possible to get true longitudinal ongoing care at a retail store versus a PCP. Now we've got telemedicine and teledoc jumping into this space. You know, now we've got a macro problem in this country, as we all know, in the Association of American Medical Colleges said, you know, we're looking at a primary care physician shortage by 2033 of somewhere between 21,000 and 55,000 PCPs. So, so we got a problem here. But what worries me is almost like the disaggregation of longitudinal care, because we're going to have I go to CVS, I have my PCP. I go to Teladoc when I have something incidental at two o'clock in the morning, you know, and then I've also got all this device on my iPhone. How do you stitch all that together to really create that longitudinal medical record? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and you're right. The, the basic premise that sort of the virtualization of primary care is a big opportunity. It, we talked about it at our investor day a lot. There are a lot of companies out there going after it with different types of models. Um, and you know, the first thing I'd say is that I do believe that virtual care is is, um, is well suited, perhaps uniquely well suited, to really drive longitudinal care for for the reason we were just talking about. That longitudinal care isn't just having a visit every year, right? It is the ongoing uh, so support for the patient. You know, for us, we include you know twenty four seven access to a, a care team and nurses, you know, for messaging as an example. So that's sort of always on and available uh, element, I, I think really supports uh, having a longitudinal relationship, a care plan that the patient and the coach have created together, right? And is, is automated and can be tracked and, and reviewed together. I think there are a lot of powerful elements of virtual care um, that are, you know, uh, I, I think you don't see as much in traditional community care. You think about a diabetic, you know, are they really writing down in their little book and bringing those results? And that that that's sort of the standard of care for managing, you know, di diabetes care often. And, and obviously, we can do a lot better than that using uh, technology. But you know, I, the one thing I think is is super important is that you know, as we look at the the question of you know virtual and brick and mortar, right? Um, it's often positioned as an or, right? Sort of which is going to win, and is virtual going to replace brick and mortar? 
Um, and I firmly believe that it's an and, not an or. Um, and, and, you know, one of the analogies I use is I think about music, right? So, um, you know, we started with an environment, you know, the CD replaced the record and music streaming replaced the CD. So yeah, technology can just create a better consumer experience and it might sort of eat for lunch the previous way to get a certain thing done, right? Listen to recorded music. But if you think about what actually happened to music, while while streaming and recorded music was growing, you know, live concerts grew at exactly the same um, trajectory. And, and I use that as an analogy because, you know, going to a concert is different than listening to your favorite band on a streaming service, just like going to the doctor can be very different than, you know, managing your, you know, your chronic conditions, you know, through virtual. And it's really the combination of both for different people, different times, you know, different use cases that I think is going to be the future. So it really is a more hybrid model of care, which requires in healthcare, a lot of coordination and sharing of data, you know, between, so those aren't two separate islands, so to speak. And that's something that we're really focused on as we uh, uh, you know, sort of build out our primary care model is having those connections in a bunch of different ways. We talk about the last mile a lot, right? There's sort of that analogy from, you know, delivery where, you know, if you think about the end to end from ordering something and having it show up at your door, the last mile is that last, you know, leaves the warehouse in the, in the truck gets to your, gets to your door. And we're spending a lot of time on that if, as applied to a virtual experience, right? Cause you can do virtual all the way up and through, you need a lab test done, right? or you need a foot exam, or you need your prescription filled. And then it's like, we'll go out in your car and drive around and, and you know wait in line and do various things. So one element of, I think, is bringing a lot elements of a care experience that tend to be forced to be uh, you know, in-person and inconvenient to bring them into the home. Because really ultimately the home is, is I think the future site of care uh, increasingly from where it is today. But where there are th- clinical services that you obviously can't bring the MRI home, you know, or, you know, there are certain things that are going to make a lot more sense to go to the specialist's office uh, for therapies or different types of exams, really having a tight connection in terms of the referral itself. So, you know, you're getting referred into a high quality, you know, in network and perhaps inside the COE or inside the preferred network for your, for your health plan provider. Um, part of that, you know, arrangement that we have a referral relationship is that, you know, we're going to get the data back. We're going to provide data about that patient and then get, you know, data back um, so that there is a synchronized record between, you know, the community bricks and mortar and the, um, you know, the virtual um, record of, of for that patient. And so it, it's not easy, you know, healthcare, obviously uh, nobody's yet solved, you know, for the universal you know, health record that is, you know, shareable and complete across the entire health healthcare ecosystem. I'm not going to tell you that we've solved that either, um, but I'm saying we consider it important and we're definitely, you know, following standards based and, you know, protocols and trying to make that a key part of the care model, that there is that coordination and uh, collaboration around the patient. I think one thing that you had uh, said there, Dan, uh, in terms of the convenience, right? When you, we talk about the continuum of care uh, of where they could go get their health care, making it easy and convenient. You know, people are very ready to to take the convenient thing if it's going to get them to the next step. And that that kind of leads me to two points is that, you know, one, Justin, you had mentioned, how do you stitch it all together? And usually those questions have some degree of like privacy included in there, like with the California law for, for privacy. And so other uh, surveys have said that people are willing to give up a little privacy if it gives them more convenience. And so I think that a lot of that 
interoperability between systems, people will say, well, hey, if that can all work together and make it a seamless event, hey, I'll, I'll allow my data to, to traverse across that environment. Uh, but again, th then it comes to the convenience factor. It really has to be something where they're easily able to just say, yep, I'm going to get on a quick call with my doctor to get to the next step. Uh, Dan, you had mentioned about, hey, when you got to go get in your car and go do something, it's got to be worth it. Like for me, for example, I hurt my foot. I don't want to have to drive all the way to my doctor's office 30 minutes away just to tell her that, hey, I hurt my foot. Can I get a referral to a, a you know ortho or something? Rather, I would have a 15-minute conversation with her over video conference, and then she'd give me the referral there. So it's like those inter- active pieces that if we can insert in the puzzle to make it convenient, the ability for people or the willingness for people to allow their data to, to traverse the, the internet to get there, it, it make it worth it in the end. Yeah, I, and I, I think we should take an expansive view of what our data is, right? So something, particularly if you think about areas of healthcare with stigma attached to them, right? So mental health as an example, you know, people, uh, you know, they're, they're a barrier to care is that people don't want to, in a small town, go and drive and park in the parking lot outside the town psychiatrist's office, right? Something as simple as that. I mean, there's data in that, right? Um, and so um, the privacy and the control of, of, your, of your presence in data, I think that you can do virtually, it's particularly within an integrated system, um, is pretty powerful. And it's actually activating people to um, take care of themselves better and access care when they might not have otherwise. Uh, and, and that can be pretty powerful. Yeah, that's actually really interesting, Dan. You know, I, I agree with you. Mental health is a topic that's really changed in the pandemic. Like 10 years ago, nobody talked about mental health in the open. It was a hush-hush topic, as you just said. We're definitely like in a healthier place now. People talk about mental health issues the same way they talk about their broken foot. I think that's amazing progress. I got some data that kind of, you know, would validate some of that, which is really interesting around it. First off, over the past you know two years, we've seen the overall volume of mental health visits, both physical and virtual, increase by about ten percent. So more people are out there raising their hands, saying, I, "I need to find someone to talk to." But when you look at how the outsized role that telemedicine has played, it, it's again, it's a shocking growth story, uh, shocking in a good way. Uh, you know, in February twenty twenty, less than one percent of all mental health visits were done by telemedicine. By April twenty twenty, or the very start of the pandemic, that jumped to forty eight percent of all visits were done by telemedicine. But now in 2020, as we're st stabilizing in this new endemic world, if you will, the percentage is stabilized about 37 to 39% of visits each month are being done by telemedicine. Uh, is that an area that Teladoc's investing in and what are you doing there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've seen the same sort of pattern. Uh, and and it, I, I think you make, you make a great um, observation. And Justin, you, you, we both been in the industry long enough to know when like mental health parity came out. And that was a big deal. It's hard to even imagine now that that was such a big deal that you have to cover mental health, yeah. just like physical health. Well, okay, that was. And, you know, now that that's sort of taken for granted, but, you know, the access component, um, it has become such a challenge for people that that's why I think, you know, virtual care has taken off for mental health. It's obviously uniquely well-suited in many ways, right? That you can have pretty much the full care experience for most, uh, full clinical experience for most consumers uh, through a virtual uh, environment. Um, and just the difficulty in finding a provider who's you know, taking patients uh, today. Um, and as you said, just the increased need because of everything going on in the environment, right? There are just more people need help 
um, than ever uh, ever before. And so we've seen our you know volume of mental health services literally go up multiples. Let me put it that way. I'm not exactly sure which number we've shared uh, publicly, but let's call it multiples, if not order of magnitude. Um, and that is continuing uh, as your data suggested, right? It wasn't just a blip and sort of gone way down. It is continuing at, at a pace um, that is uh, really makes it an area we're super focused on. And, and it isn't just, uh, I would say, lot, just like we talked about before, like virtual care versus telemedicine. It is, it is in large part through live therapy visits, live psychiatry, right, where a patient would work with a psychiatrist and be able to get medication and medication management. But part of our strategy is a, is a sort of a, a mixed model or a step care model that includes a, uh, the self-management capabilities. Uh, part of uh, when we merged with um, Livongo, uh, a part of that was also MyStrength, which is one of the leaders on the digital side. Um, so we've worked pretty hard to uh, integrate that for a full stack model where a patient can come in and get sort of triage through the program and application and, you know, get a recommendation about sort of the level and types of uh, care and services that might be valuable to them, which could, you know, include anywhere from in a mix of self-management, coaching, therapy, and, and sort of psychiatry or, you know, more acute needs and a referral um, for, for more acute needs. And I think that's important because it's it's sort of more right care for the you know the right person at the right time, but also allows us to be efficient with resources. I hate to say it, you know, nobody's minting new uh, uh, healthcare, you know, mental health care providers quickly enough anyway, right? That that supply challenge isn't going away, um, and so being able to use digital in a way that really you know extends and and sort of amplifies what the you know the therapists and clinicians and psychiatrists can do. I think it's pretty important at a, you know, not, not just at a Hellenoc level, but at a, you know, a societal level. Have you seen, you know, when people start mixing in, like obviously the, the bumps uh, that in telehealth for mental health were just astronomical for sure. And, you know, I, I did find it so fascinating that as we look across all of the specialties, you know, if even if you break out like psychology from the mental health, like specific, that is almost 50% still just across the board uh, happening virtually. But, you know, have you seen when you start patients who start mixing in the the telehealth component for mental health, does it make it more likely that they continue on with their, their therapy? Like the, the, the data kind of shows that once someone goes in for a telehealth visit for mental health, they are much more likely to uh, continue on seeing that therapist as opposed to when it's, it was always in person. So, you know, Hey, there's traffic, there's things to do. Uh, I can't eke out the extra hour of time to do the travel. Therefore, if I don't have to do that, I'm much more likely to, to stick with it. Yeah, I would say that's absolutely the case, partly for the reasons you just mentioned, like it removes some of those, um, you know, barriers of the convenience, the getting time off from work. You know, when we look at our statistics, over half of our mental health visits, the, the visits themselves occur, you know, after business hours, either weekends or, you know, nights and evenings. Uh, during the week, and and that's not happening that as nearly as much, right? In a in an in person, if it were required to be in an in person uh, setting. The other thing I'd add um, is, as we look at our mental health model, you know, Better Help model, which is you know continued to grow really well on a DTC basis, it is activating people who had not sought therapy before, and probably who would not have sought therapy for, before, and so activating them is a good thing. They're getting you know the care that they need. Um, but also a key part of that is messaging with the therapist, right? So 
sometimes a chat session, but more often asynchronous messaging. And so it's really also the mix of um, mediums, let's call it, you know, between phone calls, video calls, and, you know, um, some messaging that can also help people through different sort of cycles in their in their needs, right? Sometimes when it's less intense, it's maybe more just check-ins and it could be, you know, uh, more on the messaging side. And then when more things are coming up, you can kind of, you know, mix and match and for different, you know, different strokes for different folks. Some, you know, some consumers, we see a lot of heterogeneity and how people are using it. And it's often, most often a mix, meaning people are using each one of those different types of uh, uh, modalities. I love the the idea of, you know, thinking about those modalities just because I think everybody thinks, oh, you know, telehealth or telemedicine is you're getting on a video conference or even a phone call is a form of, of telehealth as well. And then text messaging uh, or, or you know, the like, even again, those phone calls, I think is really interesting because it expands the understanding of what we're really talking about. And when you talk about people then using those different strokes for different folks, right? It's going to lead to better outcomes. And I think in the end, the story is, part of the story is for this, of course, is that all of these different modalities we have at our disposal can eventually lead to, you know, in this, you know, five years, 10 years or so, we've got people better off now than they were in like the 19, the 2019 and 18 and 17 and so on says, because now they actually have access to these things. And it's, you know, it's that, that great story back to my optimism. It's, you know, these are the things technology is now solving these problems and it's an, and, and it gives them the, the both uh, options there. So this is exciting stuff. It's one of the things we've often, we've been focused on since the beginning. I, I, we were well known as sort of starting with the telephone, right? Cause you couldn't even get high speed, you know, video 20 years ago when, uh, when the company was founded. But even as the technologies in general caught up, you know, we've off, particularly because we serve very diverse populations, we work with a lot of Medicaid populations, we work with older populations, and internationally as well, in different developing nations, like you don't want to let now a new barrier to care come up because of technology and because of, you know, lack of access to high-speed Wi-Fi, right? Um, everybody's got a phone, but maybe you don't have unlimited access to high-speed bandwidth. And so we try to avoid, you know, introducing disparities um, by, uh, you know, requiring only a certain method, you know, sort of modality um, to be able to access, you know, the care that people need. Dan, I want to come back to something that you were talking a little bit around mental health, because one of the things that I'm really personally interested in is kind of the intersection of mental health and physical health, right? And how one impacts the other. And I think a little bit about like what you all are doing with Lavanga, which for those people who don't know, does a lot of it about diabetes management and coaching and stuff like that. And, you know, I'd love to kind of hear some view perspective around how Lavango is helping that, right? Like maybe I'm a diabetic and, you know, I eat Snickers bars because I'm depressed. And, you know, like food is comfort for a lot of people. And it's not just I have a physical issue. I have a mental issue that's driving a, a physical issue. But I think when you bring them together, you actually can make a real difference in somebody's life. Yeah, it's a great point. There's a lot of data, right, um, that we could cite around the, the value of addressing mental health needs, whether it's anxiety and depression or other things that improve with you know, the comorbidities, you know, and, and save costs dramatically, right? And but also create better outcomes for those who have comorbid um, chronic conditions like diabetes or hypertension. And so, you know, our approach, when I say our, it includes, you know, Livongo, of course, as part of the Teladoc, is to take, uh, and I know this term's used a lot, a whole person approach, right? And, you know, the first level of that is when we're talking about, you know, supporting, a let's say, a, a population of people with diabetes, 
um, not just treating the diabetes condition or managing that, right? It is having built in the ability to support, you know, weight management or um, hypertension and mental health needs as they come up. And, you know, first order is all those services are available, right, to that consumer because that's all part of who they are. You know, the second level and the harder level is make those services integrated, right? And that's really where we're focused so that the therapist who's helping you with that mental health piece isn't kind of off somewhere doing their therapy. Um, you're able to leverage the data, leverage those relationships, uh, you know, potentially between uh, providers, obviously all at the patient's discretion in terms of sharing information and, you know, privacy and, and all of that. But that integrated clinical experience is what's super powerful, right? And it, it extends all the way to, you know, if you're having your, man, your diabetes managed, you know, maybe what you also could use is a clinical consult from a physician who can, you know, order an A1C test and maybe adjust your, your insulin or adjust your medications, right? And that's part of the model too. So it's not just like gen med over here or primary care there and diabetes management over there. We're really thinking that as one holistic whole. That, that's certainly the future um, and, and where we're headed. And I'd say where more of our, you know, the clients, more of the market is starting to see that whether it's bringing mental health and diabetes together or other chronic conditions, there, there's sort of an overwhelming number of point solutions out there and in more and more in the market uh, from a purchaser perspective are trying to consolidate and, and, and make their lives easier, but also have more effective programs uh, because that's, you know, consumers are not just a series of conditions, they're people, right? And, and best handled that way. I think something super interesting when you look at, you know, Justin, your comment about the intersection of, you know, body and mind pretty much of those treatments. And then not only that, but looking at the, you know, if we talk about the mental health and the large percentage of it happening in the telehealth realm, when you look at like endocrinologists or even dietitians and nutritionists, those are two of the other large uh, groups that are large specialties really that are seeing a big percentage still drawing from their their patients in the telehealth world as well. So for example, you know endocrinologists they kind of bumped up big when it when April hit, but they're still seven or eight percent in the winter time is a little bit higher. Uh, and then you look at nutritionists and and dietitians, they're in the twenty percent. So twenty percent of their visits, even still now in you know a year and a half uh, from from last uh, from twenty twenty April they're still having a large percentage of their patients coming in as telehealth visits. So when you look at the sort of the comorbidity across those different uh, arenas, the patients are going to get used to that when their nutritionists talking to their endocrinologists and then say, oh, I'm also, you know, maybe there is uh, some kind of mental issue driving some of this. Oh, hey, just do it also with your mental health. It can all be done this way. And, and people get used to those modalities. And then it goes back to that convenience. If you're used to doing it with your nutritionist, it's an easy step over to talk to a mental health uh, therapist. And uh, it's easy to talk to your endocrinologist in that, that environment as well. So the, the chronic care leading to from mental health to you know, all these other sorts of things that, that have those connections, if people start getting used to it in one arena, it's easy enough for them to jump to their other doctor that treats their other conditions in the same, same modality. That was actually one of the interesting things we saw, as you might imagine, we analyzed pretty closely, you know, how our service is getting used, particularly, our, you know, as we think about our, um, what we call general medical service, which is what, you know, sort of remote urgent care historically. Um, but what we saw is starting in March of 2020, it was used for a whole lot broader set of things, right? Um, you know, conditions like lower back pain, 
you know, uh, hypertension, you know, endocrine issues uh, became a big, much bigger part of what it was used for. And, and that's partly because, interesting, of course, when people started shutting down because of COVID, as we all saw, there was no flu season last year, right? Sort of, it kind of shut down most respiratory infectious diseases, let's call it, right? But there was all this need around con- chronic conditions, which weren't getting managed, right? And so it, it was, obviously, there's nothing good about COVID, but it was interesting to see the broadening out of how consumers were using virtual care, even in an environment where I'm talking about where they didn't know the doctor before, right? This was a, a first visit, so to speak, between that patient and that provider. It was also kind of scary to see where that didn't happen, right? For like uh, cardiac diseases and, you know, cardiology had a massive downturn in just overall visits regardless. Uh, and the telehealth bump in cardiology was not as large as it was in other sort of chronic management. So uh, I think we saw quite a bit of poor outcomes are starting to come in the door now, well, in 2021 and, and now in 2022 of people who did not keep up with that for sure. So it was, it's really interesting, uh, you know, um, what part of our business uh, when we serve hospital and health systems is traditional like telestroke, tele-ICU, those sort of provider to provider kind of hub and spoke models. Um, and so within telestroke, there were there was in a lot of industry data that there were just fewer strokes that came into emergency rooms. And I think we all know there weren't fewer strokes, right? Then there were, it was just that they weren't making it to the emergency room. People were just staying home because they were scared to go in. So it, 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 it goes at the sort of the hidden costs a little bit in the background of care that wasn't delivered that really needed to be delivered. And, and it's scary. And hopefully, you know, people are starting to feel more comfortable get, you know, getting the care that they need in those sorts of situations. That's a really interesting point. You know, as an advertiser for an upcoming podcast, we actually have a uh, physician coming on to talk from uh, Cedar sinai about the impacts of the delays in cares uh, on his patient profile and the entire hospital system out there. But uh, I want to come back now and talk to us something I read recently in the Boston Globe, right? So uh, your CEO, Jason, told at the uh, JP Morgan Healthcare Conference, and I quote now, that Teladoc is gradually embracing more risk sharing. What does that mean? And how does risk sharing work for a virtual care provider? Uh, great question. Um, you know, and I, I position it first, as, as, as he said, uh, gradually embracing, you know, sort of evolution in that direction, right? So at the most basic level, taking risk is, you know, having as part of our economic model with our clients that, you know, we are, some of our economics are, are at risk uh, based on, you know, the value that we're providing. Right, based on outcomes of various sorts, and as you know, you know our our historical first economic model was a PMPM and you know visit fees, and and that's all good, and that hasn't sort of gone away. But certainly, there's a move in the industry towards more uh, risk-based uh, compensation, just like there is in community settings, right? And and certainly with ACOs and other sorts of arrangements. And and I actually see the evolution in virtual is going to probably follow a similar path of to what we've seen in traditional sort of brick and mortar settings. And what I mean by that is, you know, you start with fees at risk, right? And moving towards capitation, but there's a lot in the middle, right? So maybe fees at risk based on pay for performance, right? So like, what are you achieving against something you can easily measure, like a HEDIS measure, right? Like what percentage of people are getting a screening that they need, or are you, you know, impacting blood sugar? And then you can move over time to actual clinical outcomes, right? So are you uh, having fewer hospitalizations? Are you having uh, you know, uh, improved outcomes around a chronic condition? And then sort of the last step in that is cost outcomes, right? Like, are you from a total cost of care perspective or from a bundled sort of perspective around a particular 
uh, condition category, um, you know, are you impacting that positively? And I, I think virtual care will follow a very similar path because you obviously can't go straight to full capitation until you've taken those initial steps, right? It takes time and it takes proving out um, the, the effectiveness of the programs and, and those sorts of uh, settings. So we see that, you know, in chronic condition management, there's a great fit there in primary care as we move more towards into longitudinal primary care. Uh, there's a great fit there as there has been in the industry around patient-centered medical homes that are taking, you know, primary care risk. I would say that we, we certainly expect to take on more uh, risk. It could be plus minus, right? So obviously there could be some upside as well in that primary care space. Uh, I, I doubt we'll ever, we don't want to become a health plan. I've, I've been on the health plan side. I don't want risk-based capital. It's great if you're in that business, but it's not, you know, for virtual care companies. You know, th that means that we're probably not taking full cost of care risk on a population, you know, so to speak. We want to, you know, take risk where we can directly impact uh, those costs best um, and around the virtual services, you know, that, that we can provide. But uh, I think it's a, it's a trend that's in the industry. And we think we, because of the effectiveness of our programs and the breadth of our programs, like we could be pretty successful in that kind of model. You've alluded to multiple times that, you know, you have a national footprint. You have an international footprint because you're virtual. Could you ever see Teladoc getting almost back into in-person care delivery, building a network to challenge an Optum or an HCA or even a CVS? Well, certainly what I can say is our CEO, Jason, who you've quoted uh, earlier in the podcast, yeah. has been fairly declarative about his allergy to owning bricks and mortar, right? So he has said that explicitly. I, I will not contradict that in any way. So we don't really want to own bricks and mortar physical locations, right? Um, but we certainly foresee having strong relationships with bricks and mortar uh, providers, uh, and those can be retailers. We already have relationships uh, with retailers, as you know, with providers owned by our clients. That's certainly an area that we're often asked when we work with our health plans to you know, enable their providers, whether they're owned or just affiliated or, or just preferred, right, to be able to provide virtual care to that health plan's populations. Um, we also uh, have a, you know, an opportunity because we work with hundreds of hospitals and health systems around the country on that side of our business to leverage those relationships and create sort of a, uh, a you know, a network, so to speak, of, you know, referral relationships into those facilities. We tell those clients also, we have no intention of opening up a, you know, a store down the street or a clinic down the street from you. So uh, that's, as that's the best I can say. I can see in 2040 Teladoc opening a robot-only doctor's office where you go and you talk to the, the Teladoc robot and tell them what ails you and they take care of you from there. That's great. I love it. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap up a little bit here. You know, telemedicine, virtual care are growth industries, right? But our data shows that, frankly, more than 50% of people in this country have still never had a virtual care visit. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that one of those people happens to be my wife who, despite the fact that I've worked in healthcare IT for 15 plus years, uh, has yet to have a virtual care visit. So Dan, what would you say to all these people, including my wife, to get them to start using virtual care as your real healthcare delivery mechanism? Well, I can think of three things, right? So one of them is the statistic that, you know, 80 plus percent of people who try it like it as good as or even better than what they're used to. Uh, the second thing going along with that is how excited are you about the current healthcare experience? Like, do you love the current health experience? Are you like a positive MPS on what you have to go through to access care? And so do you think it's possible, you know, um, that there could be a better experience out there, at least to, to try? 
And then the third is in the time we've been talking about this, you could have already accessed care virtually, right? So why not give it a try? I love that. I love that. I'm, I'm a big user. I have used Teladoc multiple times. Uh, I give it a high NPS on the Justin scale, or whatever that <laughs> matters. Uh, but hey, Dan, I really appreciate your time. This is a, a great conversation. I know Todd has been, you know, over there having a good time and chiming in as well with you. So thanks for taking the time with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for a conversation with Ben Rooks from ST Advisors about mergers, acquisitions, and private equity investing in the healthcare IT market. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care and please stay healthy.